We had our monthly visit with the mayor today. Scott Gillingham joined us to talk about crime, homelessness, and transit safety. And particularly on that one, we had a lot of questions for him, and so did you. Some difficult but important stories on the health file today. Our 680 CJOB Health Series, presented by Body Measure, featured a story about learning how to cope with an Alzheimer's diagnosis. Also, from the Heart and Stroke Foundation, there's a troubling new report as it pertains to women's heart health. And we were excited today because the bosses were bringing in soup, so we asked you the hard-hitting question, what is your favorite soup? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and this is the Wednesday, February 1st podcast for The Start. With some light snow outside, it's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and while it looks like we're going to be a tiny bit warmer today, we are still under that extreme cold warning, as you heard with Drew, but uh, I see that somebody hmm. is rubbing it in. Yes, our friend Herb, who's listening from Puerto Vallarta, sends us an email this morning. Good morning, OB, from PV. We've read that Winnipeg has extreme cold warnings for the past few days, Here in PV, we've had extreme heat warnings. It's so bad that our strawberry daiquiris are melting faster than we can consume them. Pray for us to overcome this horrible event. Herb says, be safe. You know, Herb. Adios, Herb. It's only 27 there. Now you're you're just, I feel like you're just bragging for, I mean, 27 is a nice temperature. It must be with the humidity. Six in the morning. Yeah, no, 27 at 6 a.m. is a lot. But the humidity is 92%, so I'm going to guess that... Oh, they, that, that's rough. They got them hammered at 35, 40. Yeah. <laughs> oh, are you by water, Herb? Could you cool off somewhere? Well, hey, I'm looking at the is long-term forecast for Winnipeg. And depending on the forecast that you look at, you're going to get varying results. But, uh, you know, as I want and want to do, I'm going to pick the one that has the forecast I like better. Uh, because one forecast for Monday says minus 6, but another one... This is the Weather Network. They're, they're calling for zero on Monday. Oh, is that that old uh, put the plus one in the forecast so we don't all collectively That's walk away? That's an Environment Canada thing. Oh, <laughs> not the Weather Network? No. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but I know I know, the, I know the gag. But yeah, the long-term forecast for Winnipeg isn't all that terrible. Uh, so we hopefully we'll be out of the, this extreme cold nice. woods soon in the next couple of days. But uh, yeah, in February, busy month. It's Heart Month, as we heard Jeff Braun say. It is also Black History Month. It is I Love to Read Month. We're going to have more on that at 9.35. And it's uh, Dry February, um, amongst probably other things as well. There's a lot going on in February. And and it also is the month that, is it the month that people like to hate the most? Like February, does February get a bad rap? I know that's why we... Everyone wanted to have a holiday in February, a day off, because after Christmas, you seem to go a long stretch. Oh, yeah. You could go all the way to Good Friday. Right. And sometimes that was in April, right? Yeah. So it's the shortest month, but I think for some, it is maybe their least favorite. I meant to ask Cancer Society the other day, did you pick February because it's the shortest month? So it's like the most reasonable <laughs> month to potentially give up alcohol? That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, but yeah, t- typically February and November are the months that I enjoy the least. 
November because it's kind of this dead zone between October, which is super fun, the colors of the fall and Halloween yeah. and all the associated stuff. And uh, December, of course, is fantastic because of the holidays and winter has just arrived and everything can be pretty. But November is this kind of cold. It's cold, basically cold enough that you don't really want to do anything outside, but it's often just gloomy and Least Blech. days of sun, I think, in November. But for me, I, I dislike January more than February, Greg. January's a long month. Yeah, it's long for a bunch of different reasons. The bills start yes. flowing in from Christmas in particular that makes it feel a little bit more stressful. And yeah, yeah you're kind of uh, partied out from Christmas. You're probably carrying, as Ross from Friends would say, a little extra holiday weight. And so that makes things a little bit more frustrating as well. So uh, I know lots of people don't like February, but for me, we've already been through my least favorite month. January is in the rear view mirror. Mm-hmm. And I say hasta la vista, January. See you. <laughs> see you next Me too. year. Nothing. Every day of January was a grind. Every day. And it, w- and it wasn't even like that cold as well. Just, Imagine if it was colder. I wasn't colder. feeling good and had this cough forever and kids not well. And then, then there's the 31 days. Like, why stop at 30? <laughs> I know. Give an extra day to February. Like, yeah. uh, like, come on, let's figure this out. And the good thing about February being shorter, too, is we, we, our paychecks are, are, there's less separation between oh, our the Oh, it's a condensed pay month. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, I like that. <laughs> February's we, gaining credibility. Say more things like that, McGarry. Because we just went through, the, we, t- we re- talked about this last week, the, the three-weekend pay period, the dreaded three-weekend pay period, where the we got paid on the Friday the 13th, and then we had to drag it out until the 31st. So now we get the, it's, it's like a reward in February, the shorter I like month. I like so, but feel free to let us know at 204-780-6868, because a lot of people hate the month of February. But there's lots of stuff to look forward to in February as well. Festival du Voyageur, of course, is coming up. And for those who are into this sort of thing, uh, Valentine's Day. I know a lot of people look forward to Valentine's yeah. Day. Loren just gave it a shrug. <laughs> I don't hate it. Like I like if you like it, have at her, you know. But I, it's not a big, huge day for me. We've got some birthdays in our house in February, and tomorrow's Groundhog Day. Yes. So like you know, I, I have all the love in the world for the groundhog. AMC is running a really funny promo uh, for Groundhog Day, actually. So, so the, the like, this commercial came on, and it was a scene from Groundhog Day. I think it was the one where Bill Murray's talking about how he's a god. And then it said, uh, Groundhog Day, airing all day on AMC. And then they replayed the same promo. <laughs> and then they replayed it again. Oh, and I think again. Uh, but yeah, I guess they're just running that movie nonstop tomorrow. Good gag. I like that gag. They were running out at Christmas time as well, too, weren't they? Groundhog Day? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, yeah, AMC, if you don't have it as part of your cable package, and there's no kickback involved here, uh, I don't like the commercials, but there are some really good movies on that station. Organizations working with Winnipeg's most vulnerable are cautioning that the number of unsheltered people is only going to grow without further government help, as the supply of affordable and public housing in our city is dwindling. In part two of our series on those having to endure Winnipeg's frigid winter outside, Global's Rosanna Hempel examines the housing solutions that are already working to transition those living outside. Robert was recovering from severe frostbite on both feet at a pop-up warming space over the weekend after spending hours outside Friday in freezing temperatures while high on meth. If it weren't for the organization, I... Well, I might be dead, for one thing. 
Global News isn't showing Robert's face to protect his identity. He's been struggling with addictions, bipolar disorder, and homelessness for years. Robert says he doesn't feel safe on the street or in a shelter. He's looking for a place to call his own, but knows he can't be alone. One of the reasons that um, I think I and others have been drawn back into uh, addiction and, and even homelessness is ironically because we are looking for connection, for community. Talia Potash with Resource Assistance for Youth says his desire for community is common and many find it in encampments. And it's why that needs to be considered in transitioning people into housing. Taking individuals from encampments and placing them into a one-bedroom apartment um, in an area of the city they're not familiar with doesn't work. Potash says Winnipeg already has great examples that work, including the Bell Hotel on Main Street, which offers 42 independent suites with around-the-clock cultural and health supports. Kate Schoberg with Main Street Project oversees the building, where residents aren't required to be sober or have a job. She says the community atmosphere encourages them to reach out to supports when they need it. It's really clear to me in talking with people who um, are in those kind of edge times, maybe there's been a crisis in the family or a change in their own health, where they're like, no, I like... I need to stay here and so I'm willing to work with you on figuring out what, what I'm going to need to do to be successful. Yet few other places like the Bell have opened since its launch more than a decade ago. We need five or ten Bell hotels in this city. Schoberg says the number of unsheltered Winnipeggers is only going to grow as the supply of affordable and public housing shrinks. As much as the private sector can step up, that's really important, but the volume that we need is going to be achieved through major investments of, of dollars, and that's going to have to come from the public sector. The province says its homelessness strategy is forthcoming in the coming months, and providing housing with supports will make up part of that plan. A spokesperson with the federal government says it's already provided $228 million for affordable housing in Winnipeg. Peg. They say a recent round of money through the Rapid Housing Initiative on top of direct rent assistance will also help people in this city. Meanwhile, Robert hopes a more connected system that embraces a person's need for both community and independence could be on the horizon. We are collectively uh, paying a price, you know, whether it's, you know, money spent on ERs and police response or in the loss of life, ultimately, but yeah, it's got to be a better way. Rosanna Hempel, Global News. Collectively paying a price is a line that stands out there for me because you've had advocates for years talking about the idea that you have fire and paramedic crews that have to respond to any um, substance abuse that they see, that you have people getting hurt on the street from substance abuse or mental health issues. They respond repeatedly to bars and beverage rooms on Maine and Higgins. And that Bell Hotel, that line that they need five or ten Bell Hotels, well, back in 2007, it was this old rundown bar, beverage room. It was a hot spot for crime. They shut it down. They renovated it. They made it a low-income place for people to go with those wraparound supports. And it was lauded as a success story back in 2011, Greg, and then in countless reports and stories since. And we're still saying we need more Bell Hotels. Well, if we have the answer in that small model, let's redo it over and over and over again and make that happen. Because again, to get back to it, the cost to do that, to provide that kind of support system in the Bell Hotel versus the cost of having people 
repeatedly struggle with addictions and then repeatedly have to call 911 and then repeatedly go in and out of the hospital system, I, I, I'm sure the cost is more heavily weighted in responding to those people versus preventing them from getting there in the first place. If you're not socially minded at all, at least let's look at the balance sheet and see what makes sense. And the economic impact of not doing anything, we know what the cost of having, uh, you know, Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service uh, talked about a a number of of what they call in the system frequent flyers, individuals who are constantly being uh, attended to by Winnipeg Fire and Paramedics. It costs tens and tens of thousands of dollars every year for some individuals to be caught up in this system, to be caught up in homelessness. So uh, if, if you don't want to see the social side, how about the economic benefit, the inputs versus the outputs of investing in something like the housing that we've seen at the Bell Ho- Hotel or other models that have been proven successful elsewhere? It feels as though we study things over and over again. And I don't know what we're trying to achieve by doing that. There's no perfect solution, but I can tell you what the imperfect solution is, and that's doing nothing. And we're doing, a, it seems like at times, a whole lot of nothing. There's a lot of lip service being paid for the, to this issue as opposed to just getting in and getting our hands dirty and trying to do something to fix it. Especially, as well, it's about getting people off the street in this cold. You know, it's easy for someone like like us to say, hey, I'm going to go outside for a walk and enjoy winter and post pictures of my frosty beard like I did yesterday because I have A, the appropriate clothes, and B, somewhere to go when I decide I've had enough, I'm cold, I want to warm up. But to imagine, to hear the, the at the beginning of that story the person who was outside with frostbite on their feet because they were high on meth and your- had nowhere to go. In your walks these days, and I've noticed this recently too, I was just out, had an appointment, then I went for a little walk around the neighborhood afterwards in St. Boniface. I can't get over the number of people I'm seeing sleeping in bus shelters or the number of homeless people on the streets in minus 40. And you keep thinking, oh, there's a place to go when it's cold. Well, there's only so many places to go. Some For some, that doesn't work. And I feel like you're just seeing it more and more now. And are you just walking by now and saying, uh, well, it's Winnipeg. We are going to have an in-depth, serious, important discussion <laughs> about soup. That's right, soup, because today at work, for whatever reason, we're all excited about it. It's non-stop soup day because starting it's at free, 8 a.m. I think. That's why we're excited. It's free. <laughs> and it's cold. It's been and it's so cold. cold. Does the free supersede the, the soup part of the <laughs> equation? Yes. Okay. For all me, right. yes. All right. Yeah. Um, so we're like, what are we going to talk about at 645? Want to talk about soup? Done. So let's go. Your favorite soup or perhaps your least favorite or if you've got a soup adventure story somehow. A soup adventure. Hey, every, there you can have adventures <laughs> with everything. 204-780-68. Maybe you tried to make some soup and spilled it all over the place. I don't know. <laughs> I should say I'm in my homemade soup making ventures after we have turkey dinner or something. I'll put the bones in the pot and then oh, yeah. you want them to kind of steep in it or whatever you call it for hours. And several times now I've gone to bed and said to my husband, please make sure the pot goes, they put it in the garage just so it cools off. Mm -hmm. And then you wake up in the morning and it's sitting there. And then you think, do I have to throw this out now? Mm -hmm. Because it's sitting on the stove still. And you're in that torn place of it. Just wasted 15 hours cooking these bones. Do I toss them? That's my soup. (laughs) Adventure. That's a pretty good adventure. Yeah. What a roller coaster of emotions. <laughs> well, plus two when you put in all that effort, do the boys even want it, or do they want? Well, something sometimes else? they like they they'll say, "I do like the Lipton stuff, Mom," and like your mother has just slaved over the stove. 
<laughs> Dad almost got killed by her the next day because he didn't put the pot away. And you want box Lipton soup? Well, why not compromise and, and put the actual, the real chicken and maybe some extra carrots? And you want the bone broth fa- flavor, Greg. Don't I know, but mix mix the two. Like, find a happy medium, Loren. You you it doesn't have to be always sure one does. way or the other. It does. All right. Well, let's let's go to Cam Portress here because he brought his own bowl today. He's so excited. I, got, I, brought, I, thought, I thought it was BYOB. I thought it was bring your own bowl. <laughs> Mine's like, it holds, I made sure because I tested before I brought in. (laughs) Exactly. That was my response when I was grabbing my uh, soup bowl today. I made sure that it holds uh, at least a liter and a half because I was promised bottomless soup. Um, So that better be the case. Yeah, liter and a half of soup. And what kind of soup would, if you were to, if you were to walk down the hallway and see a certain soup in a pot, what would you have going, oh, yeah? Oh, well, I mean, this is just not going to happen because this is like a very, like, family thing. But, like, my, the Hutterite soups that I, thank goodness I've, I was, I've been, mar- I've married into a, another soup family that are making the soups. Because <laughs> I, soup my family. family are huge. Like, for Thanksgiving, we had a soup, we had a soup thing where we had 12 different types of soup and the whole family just ate soup for Thanksgiving. That's what we did for Thanksgiving that with my family. This awesome. Awesome. It was it was awesome. It was bread and soup. And so like how to write dumplings, borscht and canadal, um, uh, you know, gashtel, uh, a strunkel soup is all those how to write soups I grew up with. And then like my mother-in-law makes like this amazing uh, mushroom and a uh, cream of uh, mushroom soup. Mm. She makes a great stew with kreplach in it, which is uh, awesome as well. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm making soup. I'm making I, soup I have for some, Friday. For I have sure something for, dinner making soup. I have something for you here, Cam. Okay, go ahead. Soup your What's computer's that? been on all morning. No. You heard that one already. That is funny. That is funny, but I'm just calling you out anyway. Soup, there it is. What's that from, Mackling? That's from SNL. Justin oh. Timberlake in the cup oh, of yeah. soup costume. Soup, there, soup, it there it is. Uh, Jeff Braun, what about you? I, I also, my girlfriend is also a soup family, and actually last night she, uh, we went to the movies, and uh, she handed me a little uh, container and said, here's some uh, bean soup for tomorrow for lunch, and I was like, thank you very much. So I was looking forward to having that for lunch today i might now put it off till tomorrow since we're apparently we're having soup for breakfast but uh <laughs> and then when i had covid over christmas her mom brought me some homemade chicken noodle soup that honest to god i think that's what cured me of covid uh i don't the science maybe isn't right there to be reported <laughs> there's some sort of but, science uh, to that i think anecdotally that it, it definitely they don't call it, it uh, jewish penicillin for nothing <laughs> <laughs> okay so hang on you got your own bowl and Jeff, you actually brought soup to work today? No, no, no. It's at home. Oh, I'll be I thought you were lunch. like going to obnoxiously be walking down the hallway in the face of brought the other soup. Brought my own soup, guys. Don't need yours. <laughs> hey, Forte, what about you? My favorite would be, oh, I like my cream soup. So yeah, cream of mushroom, cream of broccoli. I like to take a bagel with cream cheese and I like to dip it. But I do have an embarrassing soup story and like it, it, like I'm really embarrassed by this. Oh. I was 15... I walk over to Horton's, Tim Horton's, and, uh, you know, I'm looking at what kind of soups they have ready to go, and uh, so I, I order, and I go, uh, hey, uh, can I get uh, Mindstrone? And the woman looks at me. <laughs> the woman looks at me. She's, like, baffled. I was like, Mindstrone. I'm pointing up the board. She's like, you mean minestrone? <laughs> and then I had to stand there while they made my order, being the guy who just ordered Mindstrone soup, all embarrassed. 
Don't be embarrassed, Forche. Sounds like the name of a Norwegian heavy metal band. No, it does. Do not be embarrassed. Mindstrone was our soup, uh, featured soup always at my Italian restaurant in Vernon, and we always called it Mindstrone just to mess with the customer. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's the best name for any soup ever. Yeah, I think I once, what did I pronounce wrong? And instead of focaccia, I think I said focusia. That's common. Focaccia, focusia. Yeah, focaccia, minestrone. You want the combo. <laughs> Mackling, what about you? Well, I'm in the same boat, the same soup boat as uh, Forche, apparently. I like the tomato, the cheddar, broccoli. Yes, it's more about the cheddar than the broccoli. Cream of mushroom, chicken pattern is developing here. But the two best soups, uh, French onion from Mon Ami Gabi in Vegas and the French onion at Finn's here in Winnipeg. But there is one champion. Right. I met this lawyer. We went out to dinner. I had the lobster bisque. We went back to my place. Yada, yada, yada. I never heard from him again. But you yada, yada over the best part. No, I mentioned the bisque. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nothing better than lobster bisque soup. In fact, Jeff Braun and I had a lobster bisque soup date at Red Lobster about four years ago. I think it's time for another one of those, Braun. Absolutely. And Loren? If my mom is doing it, then it would be just the homemade turkey noodle soup or chicken, whatever she's, you know, whatever we've had the night before. My mom does it so great, and I try to replicate it, and I can't, which is probably why my kids choose the other, choose the store-bought kind. So that would be if someone else was making it, but I also love a beef barley. I don't know why. I like those little pits of barley I in the soup. Too, yeah. I love it. I find that very just homey. And if it's somebody else making it uh, in a restaurant, French onion for sure. Yeah. I love French onion soup. Accessible housing, mental health, foot patrols, plain clothes, paramedics. They're just some of the ideas that have been shared by community advocates and public health experts who are looking for solutions to the crime we have been seeing in Winnipeg. And the crime we've been seeing downtown and some of those things like affordable housing, plainclothes paramedics that you just referenced, Brett. They were on the list of items from our next guest, who is an MP for Winnipeg Centre, which includes the downtown. She's calling for urgent solutions to address the escalating violence in Winnipeg Centre, particularly in the wake of yet another homicide. A 65-year-old Richard Daryl Wheeler, who died last week after he was found seriously injured in his apartment in the 300 block of Hargrave. We say good morning to NDP MP Leah Gazan. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time. You you referenced the death of Wheeler in your statement and this call for action. Is there something about what happened last week or was that just the, sort of the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back? Why this call now? Well, first I want to start out by giving my sympathies uh, and extending my support to the Wheeler uh, family uh, on the loss of their their loved ones. Uh, this is not the first time that I have called, in fact, for a public health response to the growing uh, violence in the city of Winnipeg. We know we can't police our way out of it, and certainly uh, that is the sentiment that has been shared uh, by experts, uh, including Health Canada, Manitoba Harm Reduction Network. Uh, we need to take a, a public health lens so that we can actually deal with what's going on. That means mental health foot patrols. That means uh, harm reduction strategies, uh, safe consumption uh, sites. Uh, that means more investment in mental health support and affordable, accessible social housing. I've been uh, pushing for since being elected, in fact, 
for a guaranteed livable basic income for those who don't have it. We know that there are so many people that are falling through our current social safety net. We know that poverty is bad for mental health. That's why I've called for a guaranteed livable basic income, including for those that are suffering suffering from significant mental health and trauma that may be able to work one day a week, or but maybe not be able to work for five days a week. They deserve to live in dignity and have what they need to thrive, not just survive. Leah, Greg Mackling here, and, and this has become polarizing to the extent of, uh, you know, there's a, there's a divide, not only with regard to the housed and, and, and unhoused in our community, but with regard to bus shelters in particular, we see individuals that are unsheltered that are living in or sleeping in bus shelters and people will say there are those who will say that's where those people want to be they want to be on the street they're happy to be on the street uh that's just the way it is and and there are no solutions here that's not the way i view it how do we connect those in need with the services that can can help them you know take those steps away from and out of uh, um, uh, away from being unsheltered Well, I can tell you, I've never met a person that said, as a child, that said, when I grow up, uh, I want to be unhoused, living out in the cold at risk for freezing to death. I don't think anybody chooses that fate. That is a result of uh, irresponsible divestment from uh, a a social housing by the provincial government and longstanding underfunding from the federal government, which has left us in a housing crisis in the city of Winnipeg. We need to address the housing crisis uh, in Winnipeg aggressively. That's one of the reasons why, since being elected in 2019, I fought really hard to make Winnipeg a priority housing city. And I'm proud to say uh, that the majority of investments, particularly uh, in housing in the city of Winnipeg, that have come from the federal government have gone uh, uh, into Winnipeg Centre. Uh, I'd also uh, like to share that I'm willing to work with all levels of government, people from across party lines, to make sure that uh, people in our community still have this human right met. Um, you know, I, I think I'm well known to work with people of different uh, political stripes at all different uh, levels, municipal, provincial, federal, to get uh, human rights issues addressed uh, in our community. And that includes Lions Place. That has Leah, Leah, I hate to interrupt yeah. you, but how do we connect with the people on the street that where the perception is that that's where people want to be? How do we, how do we how do we go into rapid assessment mode? How do we help these people now, not four months from now, when all the studies are completed, and then there's six months of well, what do we do and how do we fund this? How do we help yeah. people right now? Yes, that's one of the reasons why uh, I have proposed, along with many others, including, you know, uh, local heroes like Mitch Bourbonier, mental health foot patrol. Uh, You know, we can't police our way out of it. Connecting with people that are struggling on the ground, uh, forming relationships and connecting them with the services that are currently available, which are totally inadequate. I think frontline organizations are doing the best they can, but they need more support. That's why mental health foot patrols are so important. We need to connect people that are struggling with the services that are currently available.
Leah Gazan is a member of parliament for the NDP, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate this. Thank you so much. Take care. We are talking about soup today because at work we're having non-stop soup day. They're bringing in some soup starting at 8 o'clock. So we're all excited about that to have some soup. So we wanted to know what's your favorite soup and if you got a story about soup, even better. Loren, what does Blenda say? Blenda says, I attempted to make borscht, forgot to peel the beets. Needless to say, the color of the broth was nothing short of off-putting. Went back to buying ice cream pails of borscht at Alicia's. Then that went away and I have not found a replacement since. Sigh, says Brenda. So if you have a replacement for borscht, let Blenda know, 780-6868. And yeah, I'm guessing it would be like more of a brownie color than that beautiful purple of the beets if you let the skin on. I wouldn't know. I've never, ever made borscht before. No, neither have I. And that's bizarre because I don't like that as a soup, but I love beets. So I don't know if that makes oh. any sense. But we've had listeners text in this morning to also say they love French onion soup, but don't like onions. Yeah. Yep. yep. Hello. Same here. Yeah. Don't like the texture of it. But the taste is outstanding. You don't like onions, Brett? No, I don't Did like I onions. Did I know this? I feel like I just Probably, got maybe. slapped in the face. <laughs> yeah, I hate them. What? I, I don't like You're onions. Like a burger pizza guy? You don't put onions in either of those? No, no. Gosh, I, gosh, no. I hate them. Sandwiches? No. And yet, I'll, I like onion rings. So go figure. I like French onion soup. And of course, onion dip. Come on now for the potato chips. But Gary, Sleepy Veferoni, he says, hey, <laughs> when times are tough, you know, I make great borscht, but it ain't cheap to make. And it takes a day to make and then a day to mature. So how about let's celebrate some budget soups with the king of cheap soups, wiener water soup. And you can make it special by adding, you've got it, a can of beefaroni. That's right, Gary. <laughs> you know it. That is the uh, specialty, the prize, the go-to soup for commissioned salespeople everywhere. Yeah? Trying to live paycheck to paycheck, the good old wiener water soup. He also says you can class it up for Valentine's Day by uh, making cream of wiener water soup. <laughs> Ew. That's uh, the whole, been, nah. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think so. Uh, by the way, does this make uh, 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 our boss uh, uh, Superman today? Oh, hey, Superman. Oh, I just got that. <laughs> I'm like, Why? I mean, like, I do like free stuff, and sure, I can soup, put him in a hero category I've for I've a added day. the O, like soup, and then Superman, Superman. Spelt get soup. It? Spelt S-O-U-P-E-R-M-A-N. like soup. S-O-U-P-E-R-M-A-N. Superman. This is good. We should get him a cape. <laughs> no. Getting the cape. That was just for you, McNabb. <laughs> well, it took me a while. So here's what we need from you at 204-780-6868. Tell us about your favorite soup. If you got a story or some sort of recipe you want to share, um, shoot us a text, and we will pick a winner for the Prairie Strides annual flea market at Assiniboia Downs this weekend. We're joined now by Mayor Scott Gillingham. Mayor Gillingham, good morning. Good morning, Brett, Loren, and Greg. So crisis, urgency, call it whatever you want. We've heard it labeled several different things. I think some of us are tired of labels. Some of us are tired of talk. What's needed is action. Uh, what action are you prepared to implement when it comes to homelessness and addiction and the, and the way it's impacting our, our community? Well, first, I appreciate uh, Member of Parliament Gazan's comments. Uh, she and I have met a couple of times, and I appreciate our commitment to work together. We are acting. Um, I, um, I know that uh, right now we have 
uh, focus on uh, some interim measures in the Millennium Library to get that open again and 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 make it safe for uh, for those that use the library and for our staff as well. Um, I'm working towards establishing a, a transit security team. I've committed to making an investment um, in the Downtown Community Safety Partnership, which uh, helps to make the downtown safer, but also helps connect uh, individuals to resources. And yesterday, I had a really good meeting um, with many of the uh, of the folks that work within the homelessness sector that help people who are on the streets or are unsheltered right now. We had about 45, close to 50 people in a room together um, and uh, just talked about how we can coordinate to make sure that uh, homeless individuals are getting the help they need because many times it's, uh, it's Winnipeg's most vulnerable that are the victims of crime. And so we have to make the city safe for everybody. I think too often, Mr. Mayor, there's a perception that it's the homeless that are responsible for the crime. And, and yet what we see repeatedly is the homelessness can be the ones that the homeless can be the ones that are targeted. But there's that feeling overall of safety and, and, and in, in efforts to make sure that they're feeling safe as well. There's talks about the homes that they need. And so at the city level, what could you actually do as mayor to get more affordable housing? Because the end game, I would think, would be, like we've heard in our newscast this morning, more of those bell hotels, those systems that provide the rooms, the housing, plus those wraparound supports. And there's not a lot of dollars at the city level for that. Well, there are things that we are doing right now, and specifically taking action on what I committed to take action on in the campaign. The federal government has funds called Rapid Housing Initiative Funds. We at the city right now, we are um, identifying properties that the city of Winnipeg has that are surplus properties where some of those homes could go. We've also put a call out to, uh, to proponents who um, want to build uh, multiple unit housing that has the wraparound supports uh, on those properties. And so the city of Winnipeg is right now working with, or it's, it's an intake period where organizations are making application to the city of Winnipeg for those federal funds. So we are very actively right now working on establishing more uh, housing units for people so that we can get people off the street and get them the supports they need. Yeah, like I, as far as encampments go, for example, I mean, they pop up everywhere. I saw a couple uh, along the river trail uh, heading towards the Forks. There was one not too long ago, a small one in Osborne Village. Um, you know, we, 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 these people need somewhere to, to be, but also at the same time, there's concerns for their safety because a lot of these camps end up on fire. So what, like, how do you balance that? Because you can't just go in there with a bulldozer and tell them to get out. Well, you're right, and there's, that doesn't do anybody any good. You, you just you, we don't want to just clear people out, you know, and from one bus shelter to the next, or from one riverbank to the next. That that really doesn't help long term. Um, we really need to help individuals. And I can tell you that you know, over the last several months, even during the mayoral campaign, what I was really encouraged to hear is all across the city, Winnipeggers really want us to be helping people uh, get the uh, the services they need. And so we are right now working to establish more housing units, and it's it's a partnership. Um, what I heard loud and clear yesterday from the people working in, uh, in the homeless sector is that we need really a, a coordinated plan, uh, a broader strategy to supply housing for, for everybody. And um, I'm, I'm committed to that, to establishing a, uh, a broader plan and, and a, coordinated, a coordinated plan What's to help it? individuals. 
I just wanted to interrupt that because when you're saying coordinated plan, what does that look like to you? Are we talking like, is there, is, and maybe this exists and I just don't notice, there, there'd be a database where all these different groups could go to for all the same information or a database where there's a list of housing and what's open and what's not, or a database of the beds that are open for addictions or not. Does that even exist as you understand it? Because when you're using the word coordination, sometimes mm-hmm. I think what's lacking is just the, the information sharing. Oh, you're right, Loren. There, there is a system that, uh, that that is used right now. I don't know that everybody you know that is working with uh, the unsheltered community is on the system, but many of the of the key players and that do work uh, with the homeless do use a coordinated system. And there is some data sharing. I know that End Homelessness Winnipeg collects data, and we want to help them improve the collection of data and the use of data, so that so that r- really what we need to get is we need to get to the place where there's a continuum of care for individuals where they can, um, you know, they're not lost in the system or fall between, you know, the cracks and, and, and the gaps. That's why a coordinated plan is, needing, that involve, that is needed that involves the City of Winnipeg, all the agencies working with the homeless uh, population, the province of Manitoba and all of their departments, um, those, you know, who provide safety. It's, it's about, think of it this way, you know, it's the difference between, I keep saying it's the difference between kayaks and a river, you know, with individuals you kind of rowing around or a dragon boat. We need to be thinking and acting like a dragon boat. Everybody in the boat with one plan, everybody knows, you know, what oar they're pulling on, so we're doing this together. And um, so the coordination is needed, and we're working toward that. We saw how quickly the city could act. I would argue it could have happened quicker, but that, that's for another day. But in reopening the city of Winnipeg and the Millennium Library, the action that was taken there because uh, there was a, a crisis identified in terms of safety of those who were attending the library, those who work in the library. We're seeing a similar crisis in transit, Mayor Gillingham, but the response doesn't seem to be nearly as quick or nearly as concise. So how much closer are we getting to not only transit operators, but those who use transit, pay to use transit, feeling better about using those public facilities? Well, we're, right now my office is working on um, options to implement a transit safety team. And I hope, you know, I'll have more to say about that in, in the near future. Uh, I've met with uh, uh, ATU, the, the transit union, a couple of times. It represents, um, you know, the transit operators. There's more discussion to, to have as well. Um, we want to make sure that transit is safe for everyone who rides transit and certainly for the operators as well. That's, that's their workspace. The bus drivers, that's, that's their office. You know, you and I go to our, you, know, many, you and I, for example, go to our offices and uh, we expect it to be a safe workspace for us. Our, our transit operators should expect nothing less. So when you're talking this transit safety team, we've got a city budget that's coming out next week. It'll be tabled to the executive policy committee. So there has to be line items in there for bus services. What's your timeline then for this transit safety team? Uh, you know, the spring, the summer, fall? Um, it, it, as soon as possible. I, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, I want it to be up and running before the end of uh, 2023. There's some, you know, there's some uh, details that have to be ironed out. But uh, for sure, my focus is making Winnipeg a safer, healthier city um, through through a multi-pronged approach. And this is the one one of the approaches we're going to take to make sure that But you're prepared to pay for that this year? Place. Sorry, Mr. Mayor. You're, that, yes, that's a yes, line item in yes. the budget. We'll see part of that next week saying that there'll be extra dollars or a reallocation of funds to transit security team. You'll see an investment uh, in that this year. ATU told us last week they'd seen already in the month of January 10 assaults on bus drivers. If we extrapolate those numbers over the next 11 months, that's another 100 
plus assaults on bus operators, Mayor Gillingham. How, how do you tell the union that uh, we're prepared to, you know, wait until the end of the year to implement a strategy to keep you safe at work? I can tell you the union and, and uh, transit driver, transit drivers and uh, those that use transit, and I use it sometimes myself as well, that we're moving as quickly as we can. How many security officers would you like to see on city buses? Um, I don't have a number as far as how many right now, but I do know that there are, there are by the transit zone statistics, there are problematic routes. There are some routes that are more problematic than others, where there are more incidents than others. And I'd like to see us begin by targeting, uh, you know, that, those, those routes and making sure that those routes have extra attention and are safe. Oh, and one, one final question. Are there, what about problematic stops? Like maybe it's not so much the route per se, but there might be a particular bus stop where there, there, there's often some uh, questionable activity. Yes, I envision these transit, this transit security team not only riding the buses, but also you know overseeing and uh, the, the transit stops as well. And as you point out, if there are you know if there are certain stops along the way that uh, where there is incidents of crime or violence, then um, then I you know envision the the transit team helping with that. And also you know again uh, ongoing conversations with the police. We cannot direct the police, but um, you know sharing that information with the police where there where there is criminal activity across the city. Uh, you know I exp- you, you certainly expect uh, the law to be enforced. Mayor Scott Gillingham joining us live on 680 CJOB. Mr. Mayor, thank you very much for the visit. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you all. Have a good day. And I bring up the stop point because just yesterday on Global News Morning, Clay Young, mm-hmm. he was doing a live hit at the, the bus stop just out on Main Street, right around the corner here. And uh, I think the route number is 67. It was a Charleswood Express pulled up. Uh, and as he's doing his live hit, there was a woman wearing basically just a T-shirt Mm-hmm. And sweatpants came up, and she was getting in people's faces. And then she got on the bus and started taking her clothes off. Mm-hmm. So that I would not, I would, my perception is that a, a bus going to Charleswood wouldn't be a problematic route, but that particular stop, you know, I mean, I've seen stuff at, you know, multiple bus mm-hmm. stops right along Main Street. So. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I think you, uh, we too often think about once I get on the bus, am I feeling unsafe versus just standing there waiting for it or getting off the bus in that moment. And uh, I don't know if he starts his day as early as us, Greg, but I know he had an event to get to at 8 a.m. So I wouldn't be prepared to always answer the questions we were throwing at him at 737 <laughs> in the morning. It's our job. It's our job to ask. We've got to ask on not only our own behalf, but on behalf of the public because people are worked up about this. Absolutely. People want solutions. Uh, we appreciate action. Uh, and it, it typically doesn't happen as quickly as we would like. Uh, but some movement is appreciated. It's time for the CJOB Health Series. Presented by Body Measure. As we continue our annual 680 CJOB Health Series, brought to you by Body Measure, airing for the next couple of weeks on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Today, Loren, we're looking at Alzheimer's. So, of course, as you can imagine, and, and so many people we know have been through this, if you've been told you have Alzheimer's disease, it's overwhelming. It's an overwhelming diagnosis, not just for the patient, but for the family. And so 630 Chad's Brad Whisker looked at the trials and tribulations of being diagnosed and how to find hope for the future. Things were all good yesterday And then the devil took your memory And if you fell to your death today I hope that heaven is your resting place I heard the doctors put your chest in pain But then that could have been the medicine And now you're lying in the bed again Either way 
Over 600,000 Canadians are currently living with some form of dementia, Alzheimer's disease being the most common form, causing a continuous decline in thinking, behavioural and social skills. The very first problems are often the inability to make new memories. So it isn't they can remember things that happened to them years ago, but they can't make new memories. That is Dr. John Hardy, a world-leading neurogeneticist with the UK Dementia Research Institute. What he describes is something 71-year-old Patrine Edwards is all too familiar with. A self-described pretty darn good bookkeeper and business owner, Patrine excelled for decades. And then... I couldn't remember what I was doing, how I was supposed to do things, and it was very disconcerting. So I went to the doctor and said, there's something wrong here. After rounds of testing, Patrine was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She admits to having a good cry before quickly shifting her focus. How can I make my life fulfilling and how can I help my husband with this because he's my caregiver. That can be a daunting task for people diagnosed with Alzheimer's as there is no cure, only medication that may temporarily improve or slow progression of the symptoms. It's also suggested that people diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease maintain a healthy diet, establish a routine and exercise. Heidi Bates is a registered dietitian with the University of Alberta. Simply getting out and being outdoors and walking offers benefits to mental health, uh, physical health, the health of your brain and your blood vessels, all of which ultimately, um, you know, will benefit people. And um, there certainly is, you know, has been some good looks in the research at the benefits of moderate daily physical activity. Um, along with adequate sleep as well, um, you know, to the picture of Alzheimer's prevention and then as well um, the management for those folks who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Patrine has been living with Alzheimer's for nine years and lives a healthy, active lifestyle and it contributes to her having a lot of good days, but she says there are bad days too. Days that aren't so good, I have to be more patient with myself. Uh, the routine becomes a little slower. I can't do quite as much for that day. I can't put so much on me. Um, and so I just have to kind of see what's going on. I lose things, uh, which is pretty common for people with Alzheimer's because we put things in the weirdest places. And my husband will go, oh, don't worry about it. You'll find it eventually. One day I emptied the garbage in the bathroom and I couldn't find the garbage after. Where did I put the garbage can? About three days later, I found it in the closet. Mama says he can't remember. Daddy thinks that he still can. A report published by the Alzheimer's Society of Canada shows the number of people living with a form of dementia is expected to rise to 1.7 million by 2050. A bulk of those people will be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Break that down per day, it adds up to 685 people being diagnosed with dementia each day. Despite those numbers, doctors forge on and remain hopeful in their research. Dr. John Hardy is one of them. In 20 to 25 years, I hope we can get better and better at slowing the disease down and maybe even stopping it. But we won't 
in that period get rid entirely of dementia. We won't. We won't. It'll always, not always perhaps, but it will still be there. This is, this is a, a, if you like, a war of attrition against the disease. It's not a war where we're going to one day declare victory and it's all going to be over. That's not going to happen. But we are going to get better, better and better at slowing the disease and reducing its impact. For the 2023 Health Series, I'm Brad Whisker. And we'll have much more on this through the day as we continue the health series brought to you by Body Measure. In the meantime, that airs, by the way, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays for the next couple of weeks on 680 CJOB. The Winnipeg Jets are officially on a break. We were on a break! Josh Morrissey and Connor Hellebuck will be in South Florida for this weekend's All-Star festivities. And I suspect Jets player sightings around the city will be very limited over the next week or so, as many players are taking advantage of the players' break and will find some sun and relaxation. Our next guest is always chasing hockey and the sun. ESPN hockey analyst, play-by-play commentator, and regular guest here on The Start. Leah Hextall joins us now. Where are you this week, Leah? I am sitting like an idiot in Winnipeg instead of being somewhere warm. So that's where I am right now. So you can tell by my voice, I'm very excited about it, but happy to be home for a little bit. <laughs> oh, you sold it so, so well. I almost oh, believe you, Hexy. It's cold here. It's cold here. I, got, I had a game on Saturday in Colorado, got home, and my car battery wouldn't start at the airport. Such a rookie. I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, when did it get this cold? So uh, here we are. All right. Well, we'll hope for uh, warmer assignments for you coming up uh, in the the last uh, in the stretch here because the Jets and the rest of the NHL are getting set for the home stretch of the 2022-23 season. And the Jets return to the ice a week this Saturday. Uh, By the way, that's a 9 p.m. start versus Chicago. That's going to be a little bit of a party in the house that night. Uh, Then it's 30 games in 61 days for the home team. How important was that win versus St. Louis on Monday night? It was huge for several reasons. And one, let's start with the fact that they were coming off an absolutely deflating loss to the Philadelphia Flyers in which they were shut out. And that was their third straight loss in a row. You know, Greg, we talked about early in January about what this month can do to teams because of how busy it is. And You know, let's face it, I think in that moment against St. Louis, the Jets were a little bit in the mud. They were coming to the end of the month. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. They won enough to hold their position to remain a playoff team and keep within a central playoff position, which is check, well done. But they were feeling it. And they also had some players that were not playing their best hockey over the last three games. And that is bound to happen at this in the dog days of winter and, and just, you know, being here in Winnipeg, the cold, all those things add up, whether we like to admit it or not. It's very different playing in the Winnipeg market than it is walking outside and seeing the sunshine every day. Trust me, I travel to all these markets. It affects your mentality. And then you add on the schedule in which they had. So, I think it was just a really big game for them to win and also to be able to go into the all-star break, which let's face it, 
I have never seen an all-star break this long. Daryl Sutter in Calgary compared it to an Olympic break, and he's not wrong. This is a long time for players to be off. Nine-day hiatus. A lot of teams are not even going to practice for an entire week. So it's a great opportunity for many teams to get healthy, rested, and come back. And as you just mentioned, it's about to get real in the NHL when it comes to the schedule with the March 3rd trade deadline coming as well. So funny you say that. I actually looked at the Jets schedule this morning, and I thought their next game is – like 10 days away? Am I reading that right? And double-checked, and sure enough, next Saturday. But you mentioned that March 3rd deadline. Put on your GM hat, Leah. What would you do if you had a say? I'd probably have a big drink uh, because it is not <laughs> <laughs> it is not an easy job, especially considering what's going on in the league right now. And so here it is. We, we really have to have perspective going into the deadline. The fact is there are only two teams that I legitimately see in this league right now that can say, we are Stanley Cup contenders. We have the ability in June to be in that final. And they're both coming out of the East in the Boston Bruins and the Carolina Hurricanes. For the rest of the league, and this is actually what we've been hearing from a lot of coaches and some players as I've been doing my travels, is there's a lot of teams right now that, yes, you know, they're in playoff positions, but it just really is a logjam. There's no big discrepancies, not just in the points, but in the play to the point where a lot of teams that, yes, they're playoff teams, but they have players who are having below-average seasons. They're not seeing the type of play. I actually heard the word mediocre being used to describe some of you know, the play we've seen this year, and yet we're thinking about adding a couple more teams to an already somewhat watered-down league. But when you're looking at this right now, the Jets can sit there and go, okay, you know what, we're a playoff team, awesome. Can we get past the first round? Yeah, we got a legit chance of doing that. But then after that, them and so many other teams, it's like throwing the ball up in the air and seeing where it lands. So you're not going to go out and get a rental like a Vladimir Tarasenko or a Ryan O'Reilly that has like a $7.5 million cap hit that's a UFA after this year. You only do that if you know you're going to contend for the cup. So we're looking at depth pieces here. And even those are very difficult to make because every team in the league this year needs those type of players. Leah, the fans were not saying boo earns on Saturday. The Jets were booed at home, and uh, that which is tremendously unusual from Jets fans. So does that indicate that the Jets successfully set an expectation, or do you just sense that fans are still in a prove-it-to-me kind of mode? I hope that they've set an expectation. I don't know about you guys, but if I'm going to pay a premium price, which we all do when we go to a Jets game or any sporting event nowadays, I expect to see a quality game in front of me. I know that they're not going to win every game, but when a team like the Philadelphia Flyers, who are struggling mightily, come in and are playing against this Jets team, there should be an expectation that maybe they don't win it, even though they should, because it is one of those games you should win, but you got to score a goal. you got to show up. And considering that that was also their third loss in a row, I think that there is an expectation that this team is better than that. And that's important because this team is better than that. So I, I think the fans had the right to boo. But I will also say this. I don't really look at it as being any kind of a big deal. I have seen teams booed on so many occasions, whether it's Detroit, New York. I've even seen it you know, in California. I've seen it in Seattle. You see teams get booed when the fans feel like they are not showing up on the ice to perform. And that's a real expectation to have and one you want. I don't want to boo your love of the booing, but I'm going to boo it anyway. I don't like it. But I I appreciate your perspective, Leah. 
You know what? In the media world, we get booed all the time on other type of formats. So yeah, I don't, and I don't like it. Dads. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Leah, really quick here. Uh, you, you know, I know you've got a certain view of what this season represents for the Jets. I'll let you explain that in a moment. But there is some folks who see this as the window closing based on what might happen with Mark Shifley long-term, Pierre-Luc Dubois, his contract status. How does that um, create or how does Connor Hellebuck uh, react to one or the other or both of them leaving potentially? Like there's some pieces here, some very critical core pieces that are potentially on the move in the next 12, 18, 24 months does that change how they approach this year? Because you're talking about minor moves for the Jets. I think they, they might need to go a little bit hardcore and push uh, some more chips into the center of the table on this. Why am I wrong? No, Greg, you're not wrong. It's just it's too hard to do. But, but that's the problem, and, and that's something that we don't really understand as well as those who are trying to make these trades. It is so difficult to get even a depth piece because, one, so many teams in the league need those depth pieces. And they might have more cast space. They have, might have more intriguing draft picks. And, you know, the one thing this season is that it's a really strong draft coming up, not only first round but second round. So there are teams who are going to be wanting those pieces back are going to be wanting those top draft picks. Does Kevin Sheveldale be willing to give those away in order to give that punch that you need? And, you know, listen, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think the window to win, I, I honestly might have thought it was already closed, to tell you the truth, uh, because of what had been going on. But I look at the season, as you mentioned, and I think that this is a bonus season for Winnipeg. I did not see them being this competitive this year. I did not know what was going to happen with a new coaching staff coming in. And full credit to this team. They have come together. Something is different, and they are playing very well. We are seeing breakout seasons. We're seeing Connor Hellebuck play to his Vesna level. These are all the type of pieces that you have in which a team can actually go and start to excel down the stretch. But I just don't know if it's out there and you know listen I have been wrong before I will be wrong again I just know in all my conversations with general managers it is so difficult I was on the phone with Kenny Holland the other day the the Oilers GM before I did a game there and just listening to the decisions he's going to have to make it's a really really difficult thing to do and if Shovel Dayoff can pull it off hey, listen, this might be a bonus season to me, but sometimes bonuses are the best feeling, and that's where you get a little lucky and maybe make some magic. ESPN hockey analyst, play-by-play commentator, and regular guest here on The Start, Leah Hextall. Thank you very much. A pleasure as always. Thank you all, and everyone stay warm. Half of women experiencing heart attacks continue to have their symptoms go unrecognized and they're less likely than men to receive treatments in a timely way. When we first started talking about this about an hour ago, listener Bev texted in to say that she was misdiagnosed, went to the hospital with her heart racing, sweats, high BP, and that the nurse asked if she had anxiety issues and that left her feeling really embarrassed. And while she eventually got to see a cardiologist, there were no results. And then eventually actually had a cardiac episode. And so she's one of the people that we're talking about this morning, about the gaps that might be putting women at risk. Dr. Patrice Lindsay is the Director of Health Systems for Heart and Stroke. Good morning, Dr. Lindsay. Good morning. 
we had a report come out in 2018 telling us that there were major issues that women were being misdiagnosed. This new report highlights that only some progress has been made and we still have major challenges. What stands out for you in terms of what you were reading in the data and what you're hearing from women this morning? For sure, and thank you very much for having us. So what stands out is in the last five years, we've made some progress. For sure, we've tried to raise awareness. We've gotten you know, more funding towards research that focuses on women, but we still have a long way to go. Um, the story you just shared, we still hear way too many of those stories. There's still too many women presenting to the doctor's office, to the hospital with symptoms, serious symptoms of heart disease or stroke, and not getting it recognized right away, not getting it treated as aggressively or as fast, perhaps, as a man might. And so more women continue to die, and we need to stop that trend. Uh, Dr. Lindsay, uh, I wanted to talk about the research itself, but you said something about the presentation of symptoms, and mm-hmm. uh, even women uh, themselves, I, d- I don't necessarily understand how heart attack may present itself, because we're used to maybe the classic symptoms from TVs and movies. And so uh, often you can push aside something that should be looked at. What should women be paying attention to that maybe the men in their life might not experience when having a heart attack? Great question. So men tend to experience the Hollywood heart attack, as you've just said. You know, really serious crushing chest pain that's, you know, unbearable. Women, on the other hand, may have more subtle symptoms and usually more than one. So they might have discomfort in their neck, in their jaw, on their shoulders, weird upper back or stomach pain, nausea or vomiting, or shortness of breath. So you can see that they're more vague. They may also have the chest pain, don't get me wrong, but they will likely have some of these other symptoms, and that does throw things off for for people diagnosing. But when a woman comes in with these symptoms, people need to switch their thinking to say, okay, this is a woman. I can't just be interpreting these as something else, they might be heart because in a woman, this is what heart looks like. Well, and that that's a tricky list of symptoms, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Lindsay, because you know the, 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 you mentioned the sore neck, for example. My neck is sore right now, uh, and I would, I, and I might just think, well, that's because my posture is bad. So, at what point does should someone think of symptoms like that as, as am I having something wrong with? Is something wrong with my heart? They can get it checked out to be sure. So. Everybody, including yourself, knows yourself best. If these symptoms are sudden onset or they just are persistent and not going away, if there's no obvious other cause, and, you know, trust your gut that something isn't right and get it checked. And if you do not get the answers or somebody's not taking you seriously, we have to teach women and men to be persistent and say, no, you know, I know myself. This is different. This is new. This isn't my normal. It's not going away. And we need to push back a little bit to make sure that the investigations are happening when they should to avoid a bigger issue. We've talked about all the different things with symptoms and there's also, you know, just women, uh, if, if you're if you're in menopause, if you've had pregnancies, there's all sorts of different risk factors as well. But I want to just talk about something that stood out for years now, and that's research and the fact that trials continue to have more men involved with them for heart research than women. Is it to the point where now that needs to be regulated? Like if you're going to study heart health, have half be women, half be men or, or something to that effect, doctor? We are in fact are doing that. And um, so Heart and Stroke and Canadian Institute of Health Research, other funders of research in heart and disease and stroke are insisting that there be, you know, considerations for trying to balance 
um, male and female participants and insisting in order to get your funding that you have to analyze your data comparing men and women to see if the results are similar in both because that's been the problem. They just assume, you know, the results apply to everybody and they don't. So now in conditions of funding is that you do include that. So that research has been problematic in the past, but I suspect also the knowledge within the medical community, Dr. Lindsay. And so uh, as uh, with with depression, with Alzheimer's, with other uh, ailments that are very prominent now, it takes some time for the knowledge to cascade through the, the healthcare system. Uh, even something using the terminology widow maker, heart attack, uh, just tells you how patriarchal uh, this has been over the years. So just talk about how long it's taken and will it take for the knowledge that we are gaining now to make its way through the system? Right. On average, in the past, we've said it takes almost 15 years to get new knowledge and research into practice. I think we've really accelerated that and it's happening much faster now than it used to. But we're starting in elementary school, we're starting in high school to teach kids about heart health and stroke health and the differences between men and women. It's now um, being taught more regularly in med school, nursing schools. We need to do more of that. So we're making progress there, but there needs to be much more education at those early stages. So by the time they become doctors in the emergency department, it's well ingrained rather than something they have to learn new at that point. Dr. Patrice Lindsay, Director of Health Systems at the Heart and Stroke Foundation. Thank you very much for joining us this morning to kick off Heart Month. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for covering this important issue. Have a great day, everyone. The tough question this morning on The Start. What is your favorite soup? For a chance to win Prairie Stride's annual flea market tickets for this weekend at Assiniboia Downs. Talking about soup because uh, they fed us soup today at work. And yes, it did, it did arrive and I, it was del- I thought it was delicious. Um, won't speak for anybody else. But uh, Shane says it's got to be tomato soup with a sleeve of crackers, enough so the spoon stands up. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, oh, so it's more of a paste. That's how I used to eat mushroom soup, actually. And I, I it's gross, but... It tasted delicious and would have also been a suitable pothole. Uh, you know, we're always looking for makeshift pothole fillers. Yeah, yeah. The the refried beans and the mushroom soup with the crackers. Salt and pepper or just pepper in that mushroom soup, Brett? Uh, no pepper for me. Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a pepper person. Yeah? And in fact, I'm missing our old editor, Steve Smythe, because he used to have a salt and pepper shaker in the building. <laughs> and so as I was eating, which he gifted to me when he retired. Well, come on. And then I took them home for some oh, reason. Come oh, on. <laughs> Gee whiz. So as yeah. I was eating the soup this morning, I was like, this isn't bad. Could, could use, use some, some pepper. Could use some pepper. Yeah, that was my only complaint. <laughs> Odd enough. It was great. Maureen says we really, really missed the wonton soup from the former Ken Hong's restaurant downtown. You would freeze your derriere off in there in the drafty old building, but it was worth it every time. And I asked, where was this place? It was on Albert Street at 38 Albert. I guess the building burned down a few years ago. It was just across the street from here. Yeah? Yeah. Ah. Well, that's sad that it's uh, that it burned down. Uh, the, the soup sounds delightful. Um, Greg, why don't you bring us in with our runner-up? Mike is our runner-up. He's got a couple for us here. Yeah, he says his best and worst soups. Uh, best is a Thai soup I make, I make called Tom Kai Gai which is chicken and a few veggies and a coconut milk base. It uses a root called 
Oh, boy. Gal and gal? <laughs> I have no idea. Thanks, Brett, which is often very difficult to find locally. And when I did find it, I bought lots and froze some for later batches. Lemongrass is also used, but only as an additional flavor. Don't eat it on its own. Limes and chili paste give it a hot and sour overtone. It's so good. Uh, you're selling me, uh, Mike. And Mike says, worst for me is meatball soup, which my landlady would make when I was boarding with her in Thunder Bay while attending good old Confederation College. I think it is also called wedding soup or whatever it is called. I want nothing ever to do with it again. <laughs> Something about boiled Balls of hamburger meat. How could something so poisonous sounding be called wedding soup? Yeah. Like, is that some sort of like... Oh! uh, What do you you mean poisonous sounding? Well, it just sounds... The way he's talking about it, it sounds like... Why would you want to eat this nonsense? It sounds gross. There's another word that goes in front of that uh, for the wedding soup. There's another word missing there, I think. Okay. Yeah. We shall investigate. But in the meantime, Loren McNabb, Paula is our winner. Paula. I hate onions, but love French onion soup. So we go to Schmecker's after the dance hall closed around 2 a.m. I would order French onion soup, but without the onions. And they would strain out the onions for me, so it was just the broth, croutons, and the cheese. The Schmecker's I went to near the bridge on Marion. It's been gone for years now. It was usually after going to Times Nightclub on Portage Avenue way Mm -hmm. back in the day. I like this because you're still getting the onion flavor. Mm Mm-hmm. But just not the onions if you're not an onion person. I do question the French onion soup choice post a night out. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like there's just not enough soaking upness yeah, yeah. happening Too there. Too much liquid, perhaps. You, ah. Yeah. You gotta, you're already soaking up the liquid, are you not? You just need some like bread. Or she was dancing it up and looking for the sodium of that soup yeah. to replenish her ah. sweat. Schmeckers was so good. <laughs> oh, so good. Italian wedding soup. Italian wedding, yeah. Why is it called Italian wedding soup? The term wedding soup comes from a mistranslation of the Italian language phrase minestra meritata, or married soup, which is a reference oh. to the flavor produced by the combination or marriage of greens and the meat. There we go. And actually looking at some pictures, it's actually it looks pretty good. So, yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, Paula wins. Congratulations, Paula. You're going to the Prairie Strides Annual Flea Market at Assiniboia Downs this week. Weekend. February is a busy month. We've already pointed out that it is Heart Month. It is Black History Month. We recently learned about Dry February. And now we're going to talk about another big thing that's happening in the month of February because one of the things that we love to do here on The Start is interview local authors. So, of course, for February's I Love to Read Month, we've decided to dedicate every Wednesday at this time to speak with a Manitoban who's put pen to paper for some really impressive reads. And all the people we're going to be speaking to this month are children's authors. And we welcome to the start this morning, Larry Verstraight, author of Coop the Great. Good morning. Good morning. So before we get into the... Oh, well, thanks for taking the time. It's not co-op the great, right? That would be a very Western Canadian thing to say. (laughs) No, Coop. (laughs) So before we get into Coop the Great, I mean, I'm curious how... I'm always curious how people get into writing, but particularly for you, getting into children's books. How did that come about? Well, actually, it uh, sort of came off of my teaching career, I suppose, in some ways. I was always interested in writing and... uh, just happened to find a kind of a lead article somewhere that sparked my imagination. So I started by writing science books, basically, uh, which is uh, my background in science, and uh, built that for a while and moved on to True Adventures and 
eventually into novels. And that's what Coop the Great is, the most recent one. So tell us about Coop. There is uh, an animal aspect. Animal lovers, I understand, are are apt to fall in love with this book, but it's got some it's got some uh, pretty uh, serious subject matter, I would suggest. Yeah, I guess that Coop is uh, an aging, uh, cynical, down and out kind of dachshund who's uh, ends up living with Mike, who's a, a recently widowed senior. And uh, Mike seems, sees a lot in, of good stuff in, in Coop, and he reads to him each night about historic, uh, historic and heroic dogs. And uh, Coop doesn't feel that he's quite up to that kind of a challenge. So when Mike and his grandchildren, Zach and Emma, run into some difficulty, Coop is faced with the ultimate test. You know, Mike rescued him, but can he return the favor to Mike? And that's kind of the crux of the story. Yeah, and there are some serious elements in it, um, and I guess it hits a different different themes, you know, uh, empathy and heroism and questions about worth and positivity and things like that. Why a dachshund? A dachshund, yes. But why? 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 Do... Oh, I, I guess the idea came to me while I was on a hike in Arizona, and uh it's a very steep kind of challenging hike, and uh, it's a dog hike, too, because people bring their dogs. And then one day I saw this little dachshund with his, his human, and he was dressed in a little green sweater. And I thought, well, he's going to have a few challenges because this is very steep. He's got tiny legs, and it's very rocky, and even I find myself uh, kind of struggling to get to the top. Um, so we went on ahead with the hike, and then and we saw the fellow with uh, that had the dachshund coming up the trail, but there was no dachshund. But when he passed by us, we noticed that actually the dog was in his backpack and was uh, looking like he was on uh, quite a joy ride and enjoying <laughs> the whole thing. And I, and I guess that whole kind of idea of a small dog facing challenges uh, came to me from that hike. So when you write, you know, children's books and where you're looking to do something like this, you have an idea for the story, Larry, but then you also have... Um the audience that you're hoping to hit. So who would you say is best suited to read this book? Is it for all ages or specific people? I think all ages would enjoy it. I mean, I've heard of adults who who enjoyed the book, but it's really for middle years. Mostly I would think uh, probably ages nine to 14. Uh, That's kind of the target audience for the book. How do you, how do you, connect with uh, younger readers and you know I, i'm a father and and sometimes it feels as though the message I, i'm trying to deliver to my kids goes go right over my head because maybe my my ability to connect with them has uh, decreased over time uh how do, how do you find that magic in storytelling to to have kids listening through the entire thing and hopefully ultimately get the message behind the story yeah, I don't think I actually started off with any particular kind of message. I just knew that there was going to be a rescue, and I've kind of, you know, hinged everything around that. Um, and I wouldn't say that, you know, I I think one of the dangers of writing for children is that you're writing down to them. Mm. And I don't uh, I don't do that myself. I hope, anyways, and uh, sort of speak their language, coach it in terms that they understand, and I think keep the plot moving forward and getting more and more complex as it goes on. And I find raising questions for them, you know, at every turn, hopefully at the end of every chapter, they have questions that lead them to the next chapter. And um, 
that keeps him going through the book, I think. You mentioned the, the writing down to younger readers and that there's a danger there. What, what is that danger? I think it's a danger of sort of um, making everything simplistic. I think kids are capable of, uh, of, you know, and they're at that point in their lives where they're questioning themselves and they're wondering where they stand in the world. And I think when they have characters that are doing the same thing, um, they just see themselves in that character. So, you know, if you would try and give them all the answers along the way, then I think that's kind of writing down to them. And um, I try not to do that. It's interesting because, you know, you've had people write reviews for your book and they talk about the idea that it's really stuck with them. And there are adults that are saying that. And there can be something really profound about a children's book that if you read it with your kids or read it to your classroom where the adults learn something too. And so you mentioned briefly there that all ages could do it, but what feedback have you received from moms or dads or teachers out there? Oh, it varies. Um, I've had some people that have really read it to their, their kids, kind of bedtime story kind of thing, and teachers that have read it to their classroom. But usually that involves a lot of discussion along with it. I One teacher read it to a grade three class, and I was wondering if that was suitable or not. But at each turn, they had discussions. The kids charted things in a, in a log book and drew pictures to go with it. And I think through that kind of a process, they really kind of um, grabbed onto the book and understood it. Uh, but then I've also had other people who've read the book, adults have read the book, intending to give it to their, you know, children and then deciding for themselves, well, I don't think they're quite ready for this yet. So they're putting it aside because, you know, some of the themes in the book are a little bit uh, complicated. Um, and maybe that, that particular child is not ready for it. And that's just fine. How did you enjoy teaching elementary school, younger years kids uh, what what was the best part of that larry i don't know every day was different i taught mostly grade five and grade six and uh, i really enjoyed that age i mean i taught higher grades too but i kind of gravitated towards that middle years uh, realm i think they're still eager they're still fresh they they want to explore life they're looking at all different kinds of angles questioning themselves they're growing up you know and everybody comes from a different place but we're all trying to seek the same thing, you know. So I think I think that whole bit of energy and enthusiasm always stuck with me when I was teaching those grades. Larry, where do we get the book, Coop the Great? Oh, I think you can get it at McNally for sure, and online and from the publisher, Great Plains Publications, who have been so good about all of this. Uh, probably Chapters would carry it too. Amazon has it. Um, yeah, all those outlets. The book is called Larry the Great. The author is Larry Verst or pardon me, Coop the Great. <laughs> and your name is Larry Verstrait. So, <laughs> but you have been great. So <laughs> sort of rhymes. <laughs> Larry, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it, sir. Well, thank you very much. And uh yeah. straight the great. <laughs> but the book is Coop the Great. Correct, and uh, we we do have some more information on I Love to Read Month on our website, cjob.com. Do you know if there are, because we, you know, we used to go out into the community and read to kids at schools and mm-hmm. went to the children's hospital and stuff like that. Are, are they allowing that 
again? I'm so far booked to go to two different schools next week. Yeah? Yeah. So I've done some virtual stuff over the last couple of years, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think you have as well, both of you. But uh, yeah, this year I know uh, River East Transcona School Division. I'm going to two different schools next week. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll have to put out some feelers with my uh You friends. have to because you love it. I did really, I did enjoy it. Uh, it was well, especially in, in February 2019 or 2020. Pardon me. It was in, it really actually was really helpful because I went to I don't know ten schools or something. But I, I was dealing with depression at the time, so getting to go hang out with kids of various ages sort of brought my spirits up, you know. And one day I'm, I'm at a daycare and I've got to- little toddlers crawling all over me like I'm a jungle gym. How old are you? And, How tall are you? And then a, another one. I went to this uh, this private school off of. Um, Oh, is it Lindale? What's what's the street that runs behind the San Lucia of St. Mary's? Yes. Nor- yeah, Lindale Drive. I've read there too. What is that school? Yeah, it's just a little Catholic school, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, so it was like K to 8 almost. And I got oh, such a wide variety of questions. One of them was, are you afraid of coronavirus? <laughs> wow. Before. This is pre-pandemic. Yeah. Before we were even talking oh, about pro. it. Yeah. Who knew what was going to happen a month later? So, Kids know. Yeah, they always know. The question always, what do you make? And then you have to say, be prepared to be disappointed. <laughs> well, when they ask you how old you are... Don't ask them how old do you think I am. Yes. You are not prepared for that answer. <laughs> Very good point. They they always go higher. 80? <laughs> <laughs> not quite.